I'm going to talk today about foreshadowing. Thank you all for coming. Um, and uh, <clears throat> foreshadowing, Opus said, I think it's the title of this panel, Opus's famous quote is foreshadowing your key to quality literature. <laughs> and I totally agree with that. Foreshadowing is not used in all works of literature, and it's interesting when you start looking for examples. Some writers use it all the time, and others use it scarcely at all. So it's not essential, but in almost all cases, it really improves your writing and makes your writing much more resonant. And in, in certain kinds of plots, in certain kinds of stories, it's absolutely essential. So, now we are used to thinking of foreshadowing as the battle had I but known school. Had I but known when I went into the dark castle that night that my life was about to change. My, my definition of love was about to change and I would feel horrors that I had never felt before. I think I would have gone home. That is bad foreshadowing. <laughs> and Mary Roberts Reinhardt, who was a mystery writer in the 1920s, and really a pretty good writer, um, but she used this kind of foreshadowing all the time. To the point that there is a new there is a school called Had I Been Known School of Foreshadowing, which they say in all the Wikipedia entries was started by Mary Roberts. <laughs> and this is like being on the front page of the New York Times in a bad way. You don't want to have your work associated with a bad example of how to write. So people have a lot of modern writers have kind of shied away from, from foreshadowing because they associate it with this kind of thing. And of course that sort of clumsy, had I but known stuff, you don't want to have in your writing. But direct foreshadowing is still used all the time and used very effectively. And um, uh, for instance, in Star Wars, which, gosh, I hear there's gonna be a new Star Wars movie. <laughs> I'm sure it's just a rumor. <laughs> um, Han Solo saying, I have a bad feeling about this. It's just classic, old-fashioned foreshadowing but very effective and works quite well. Um, in, in the movie Stagecoach, uh, the, the original Stagecoach, 1933, with John Wayne, one of the, the lines that you know, somebody asks in the Stagecoach about the Indians, and they say, you won't see, you won't see the Apaches until they're here. <laughs> and which sets up beautifully the situation halfway on through the movie when they're riding along just come out of nowhere, it would not have been nearly as effective as it had been, as it was throughout the story. And it wasn't just with that line. I talked about the Apaches, and then there was that. They talked at one point about a cut telegraph line, and the, the, it was cut off in the middle of a message from the cavalry, and the only word that got through was Gerard. So you're already thinking, ominous, you know, something's going to uh, at one point, somebody talks about seeing smoke signals. And then when they come upon one of the stage stations, it, the cabin of the stage station has been burned down and there's a slaughtered woman's body outside. So you have been set up all the way through to expect, but it's still a shock when the bill salesman is suddenly out of nowhere, hit um, uh, with the arrow. And that is, is part of what you want. When good foreshadowing is set up in such a way so that it's all there and it's preparing you and it's getting you ready 
but you're not noticing it in a way so that it does still have the ability to surprise you. Bad foreshadowing is when it's so obvious that you know exactly what's coming. It's like in those old silent movies where they used to, remember at the end of the scene, the camera would iris in black and it would be on or the robes, or the person's face. And we're, that worked well in the 1920s for an unsophisticated movie audience. It wouldn't work now, except if you were being funny. Uh, and humor is a good way to get away with foreshadowing too, which we'll talk about later. But uh, you want to set things up, but you don't want them to see that you're setting things up, which is where all the trouble with foreshadowing lies, is to get that balance right. I said that foreshadowing isn't always necessary. However, if the more bizarre and extraordinary the events you are going to talk about are, the more you need foreshadowing. You simply cannot have things coming out of left field that you, in the normal course of what you know about stories, would never have expected. Gardner's Law has a great example of a slush pile manuscript that he read. And in this story, um, a guy is being chased by a monster across the Brooklyn Bridge. And the monster is steadily gaining on the guy, and he realizes he cannot run the monster. So he kind of drops over the side, hoping the monster won't see him. He's hanging on by his hands. And the monster comes, and he begins stomping on the guy's hands. So you know, he's losing his grip. He loses the grip of the first hand. Oh, no. And then he stomps on the second hand. He's losing the grip on the second hand. I forgot to tell you, this guy can fly whenever he needed to. <laughs> <laughs> A little foreshadowing would have helped in this circumstance. <laughs> and in fact, there's a name for that, which Gardner was illustrating when he told this story. And it's called the tomato surprise. <laughs> it just comes out of left field, and you don't, you know, uh, you aren't expecting it at all much better to foreshadow it, but that's where you need to foreshadow it early on and in ways that won't be noticed, as I say when we're talking about the, um, In the sixth sense, everything depends on how many people are going to be mad if I tell them the secret of the sixth sense. <laughs> okay, then. Right. In the sixth sense, the re one of the reasons that movie works, it was, okay, was there anybody who wasn't fooled by the sixth Okay, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else was cool, as you were supposed to be. Okay. Um, the, the, when he's shot, he's shot in the very first, the psychiatrist is shot in the very first scene. Okay. If he had met the kid in the church, and the kid in the church had said, I see dead people, everybody would have tumbled to the end because those were separated by only a few minutes. Instead, we see him sitting on the bench, we see, we see the other things six months later, we see the kid in the church, we have the scene, we have another scene, and it's a good 20 minutes later before we hear the kids say, I see dead people, by which time we have forgotten about the foreshadowing that was all right there. And the other kinds of foreshadowing we use are much more subtle than that. But it's essential that if you, that you separate your foreshadowing from uh, where it's needed. And the more distance you can place between the two, the better. 
Um, one of the rules of mystery writing is that you can put anything you want on the first page. You can literally say, the murderer what? <laughs> nobody knows what they're looking for. Nobody knows what the story's about. Nobody knows what's important. They don't even know who the main character is on the first page. They're still finding their thinking. You can do anything you want on the first page. And Scott Charo's presumed innocent, go look. The clue, the main clue is right there on the front page. It's on the first page of Agatha Christie's Peril at End House and countless other mysteries. You can put anything you want on the first page. So if you really need to hide something big, and you really don't want anybody to notice, put it in the first line, because <laughs> nobody will see it there. They, don't, they haven't even figured out yet what kind of story you're telling. Okay, so uh, I call, to explain foreshadowing, I think of it as you're really setting the traps, and you are planting the clues, and you are setting up all the stuff you're gonna need in your story. And when I wrote Black Out and All Clear, <clears throat> which is quite a long book. Um, I have a scene early on where my time traveler is masquerading as a maid and she's out one of the manners that has taken a bunch of the evacuated kids. And the idiot lady in the manor has decided that everyone up there should learn how to drive just in case they need to drive an ambulance that or something. Unlikely where they are. Really unlikely. So they're busily giving, the vicar is busily, busily teaching everybody at the manor to drive everyone on the staff, including my heroine. There are two horrible children there, such brats, and they want to be taught how to drive. And eventually, because of the mischief that they can get into if they're not in the car, they agree to teach the two of them to let them come along on the lessons and then eventually teach them to drive because they are so annoying that they won't do it. My editor said, this scene is here for comic relief, but for the purposes of, you know, length, this scene can go. And I would, no, <laughs> this scene cannot go because it's not here for comic relief. The comic relief is to fool you into not noticing the foreshadowing. The child needs to know how to drive the car because 600 pages later, in the middle of the blitz, she's going to have to drive the car while my heroine tends to somebody who's injured in the back. And that has to be set up because if I get to that point, which is a really big emotional scene, if I don't set it up, instead of people going, oh my God, he's going to die, oh my God, they're not going to make the hospital time, everybody will be saying, how come this kid knows how to drive? <laughs> I don't get it. How many of you have had that moment in a movie or a book?
She is the queen of foreshadowing. And if you want to learn how to do foreshadowing, just read Agatha Christie's. Read the book straight through, be totally fooled, then go back and figure out where the clues are and how she got them in there and why you didn't see them the first time through. And the reason you didn't see them the first time through was because she carefully set them up so you couldn't see them, so they were invisible. So she's brilliant. Um, the other person, I want to say real quickly, the other person who you should be reading if you want to do foreshadowing is Hemingway. He is master of direct foreshadowing. And he's just so good at it. Um, the snows of Kilimanjaro begins with, the marvelous thing is that it's painless, he says. That's how you know when it starts. And you don't know what that is. <laughs> but you can't wait to find that. Because he is, and that is just as good, if not, not better than, had I but known when I walked into the haunted castle. In another country, his short story, another country begins with, in the fall, the war was always there, but we didn't go to it anymore. And what is that? And we don't know. But he's setting us up by encouraging us, taunting us, setting up a sense of forebodingness without us knowing what it is. He's really good at all kinds of foreshadowing, but especially at direct foreshadowing. So, okay. Um, and then, of course, uh, you can use humor. Uh, to have somebody say something that is not taken seriously because you think, oh, this is the comic relief, and it's really not. It's really the foreshadowing disguised as comic relief. Or you can even break the fourth wall. In the last Boy Scout, uh, the author says, remember Jimmy's friend Ken, I'm sorry, Lee. Remember Jimmy's friend Henry, who we met briefly near the beginning of the film? Of course you do. You're a highly paid reader of development exec. So he's breaking the fourth wall. But he is doing, that's just plain old fashioned direct foreshadowing. So it still works really well. It's just that we've gotten so much better at spotting it that a lot of writers try to use other techniques of foreshadowing so that it won't be spotted. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So uh, Chekhov said that um, if you have a gun, his famous thing, if you have a gun on, uh, above the mantelpiece, a loaded gun above the mantelpiece, it has to go off. And that is absolutely true. If you're going to set it up, you've got to use it. And foreshadowing is all about setting up the things you're going to use. So if you have a story and it's been through six versions, and in the first version, the pumpkin pie was really important, <laughs> and it's not anymore, take it out. <laughs> Don't leave it in there to confuse the reader, because they will be really annoyed at the foreshadowing that they've wasted a lot of time and attention just not there. My two favorite movies in this regard, write them down. This is a, be sure you don't go see this, unless you're learning how to foreshadow and want to see how it looks when it's terrible. One of them is The Majestic, the Jim Carrey movie. Oh, I wasted so much time on that stupid monkey and nothing ever happened to it. <laughs> and then, even worse, have you heard about the Morgan? which is a romantic comedy that actually has a happily decent uh, premise. The couple are ready to get a divorce. They're at each other's throats. And then they accidentally witness a mafia killing, and they have to go into the witness protection program in the wilds of Wyoming. That sounds pretty good, right? Oh my god. <laughs> they spend this whole time setting up 
this idea that uh, nobody locks their cars in, in Laramie. Actually, people lock their cars in Laramie. But this whole thing about in the West, here we're all real friendly, we all totally trust each other, we never lock our cars. This is a conversation. Later on, there's a thing where people, they remember, oh yeah, people never lock their cars. Later on, there's another one about, oh yeah, people never lock their cars. Waiting and waiting for the big moment where it's important. That's it, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I was so curious at the end of that movie. I just wanted to go out and walk the cars all over the day.
I assumed your sword would be made of wood or something, which makes you think this is the comic relief, okay? Of course, the pistol is really important. So is the compass. <laughs> so, and they will both play heavily into the story much later on in the three movies even. I mean, they're setting something up that's going to continue to resonate throughout all the movies. But the pistol is special. Then halfway through the movie, much, much separated from this event, he's about to shoot Will Turner. And he says, please get out of the way. This shot was not meant for you. Which is direct foreshadowing. Like the hat I don't know. Because you're like, why wasn't it meant for you? Who was it meant for? Why is this so important? And why does he, he's a pirate. Why does he only carry around one shot in his and then finally, at the end, when he shoots Barbosa, we see what all this buildup has been leading to. And so it's beautifully set up, but not obtrusively, so that you, you forget that you saw that, and yet when it happens, then you go, oh yes, of course, that was all set up. So Pirates is really good at this kind of foreshadowing. It's also good at, at conversational foreshadowing, where um, Jack says to well, they've escaped from prison, they're about to commandeer the ship. And Jack says, hang on, I need to know this before we go any farther. How far are you willing to go to rescue the girl? And Will says, I die. Which is not paid off until the end of the third movie. <laughs> when he does, in fact, die first. And so I'm just like, this is such good for Seth. I love watching this movie all over again, just because they did such a nice job of setting things up and putting them in place. And each, the key to each of these things is that you think the foreshadowing is there for some other reason. Okay, so you think it's there for humor, or you think it's there just so Norrington can make a snarky remark, or you think it's there just to show character, whatever. But you do not realize that they are actually doing that. And that is the key, I think, to foreshadowing. It should do two things. It should do the thing it's meant to do, which is to set up, set your traps, and plant your clues, and then it should have a second reason for existence so that it appears to be doing something else than what it's doing, okay? So, are there questions? Well, <laughs> yes. Back to the future, of course, that Back to the future? Yeah, lots, lots of foreshadowing. Lots and lots of, well, there's a foreshadowing, there's a backshadowing.
<laughs> you had to name him that. So that's how far in advance you have to think about your push-up. It's got to be thought of so that you all the way back. Now, the, the great secret about writing is you don't have to do it on the fly. You can go back and change his name to Felix Sumner. His name could have been Bob Smith all the way through. And when you think of this great joke, you get to go back and change it to Felix Sumner. And you get to go back when you decide that she's going to faint and go back and put it all in. And you can use as many drafts as you like. Um, 
and it's about how he ends up having a crisis of faith. Okay, and I, the first scene takes place on the bus where they're stopped by a cop, and the cop they're, they're speeding, and the cop he manages to use his all of his televangelist skills to talk the cop out of giving him a ticket. Okay, I could not have told you what the first line of that movie was. I would have assumed it was something to do with the cop stopping. The first line is spoken by Erica Kane of All My Children on the TV that's on the bus. And she says, you thought you were holding all the cards, didn't you? <laughs> Which is what the movie's about. You'll never notice it, but except your subconscious notices it on some level and helps you set that up. In the original Ocean's Eleven, a movie I love, I hate the Ocean's Eleven movies, but the original I love. And it's got one of those awful, extraordinary things that happens in the middle, which is the plan has been executed perfectly. The robbery has been pulled off beautifully. Nothing has gone wrong. And then one of the guys drops dead of a heart attack in the middle of the street. This is an absolute no-no for writers. You can't have a coincidence in the middle of the story. And it does not appear to have been set up. And then when you go back and look, not only does he have a scene with the doctor, which you kind of skipped over at some point, which is the only thing that could count for sort of obvious foreshadowing. One of the first lines is the boss who's putting this job together says, oh my god, you almost gave me a heart attack. <laughs> I counted. There are eight references to heart attacks <laughs> scattered throughout the first two scenes. And it's just they're, they're, they're funny, or they're, you know, they're, it's just a way of speech. You know, it's a manner of speech that we use all the time. You don't notice any of them unless you're looking for them. But they're all there, and they're all subconsciously predisposing you to be ready to have a heart attack happen in the story. So that you're not, so you're not, nobody that <coughs> saw the movie when it came out went, what the hell, you can't do that. That's a huge coincidence. Everybody just went on and went on with the story because it had all been so beautifully set up. Okay, um, and then my cousin Vinny, if you remember, they go to the restaurant <laughs> and there's one item, breakfast, on the menu. <laughs> so the item says breakfast. And he says, well, what's breakfast? What's breakfast? And he says, well, it's eggs and ham and grits. And Vinny says, what is a grit? <laughs> A good question. And it's really funny, and it's there for the humor. It's major in the court scene. It's absolutely one of the most important pieces of evidence in the court scene. But it doesn't look like it. It's just beautifully, subtly there. Okay? All right. Another kind of foreshadowing is reverse foreshadowing, which is one of my absolute favorites. This is when, this is the what could possibly go wrong. <laughs> or I've got it all worked out. This plan is cool. <laughs> which we all know now is not the case. And so we're immediately set up to believe that. One of my favorites is in a, a movie called New in Town. And uh, it's a romantic comedy about a, a top exec, Renee Zellweger, who's sent to close a plant okay, in, in northern Minnesota. And it's kind of a fish out of water story, you know. It's the folksy Minnesotans versus the big, uh, she's from Miami. Big city girl. Okay. So 
she gets picked up by her assistant, and her assistant brings her a big bowl of her homemade tapioca, which everybody in town loves, and then she invites her for dinner, and she sends her home with another bowl of tapioca, which everybody in town loves, and then she tries to talk to her at work about something, chatting about something. She's very chatty and friendly, and keeps asking her if she accepted Jesus as her personal savior and so on. And so the very annoyed exec says, somehow I don't see your tapioca recipe saving the planet. So let's just focus on business, okay? <laughs> and the important thing is that at the point she says that, you totally agree with her, that there's no way this is relevant. And you need to totally agree with her. There's a, a famous example from the movie Titanic. Don't get me started on what's wrong with <laughs> But one of the worst things in it is when Jack gets a ticket. I don't know how he's in the car. I don't know the car game. Car game. He's in the car game. And he says, I have a ticket on the Titanic. I am the luckiest man in the world. I hate that. It's meant to be ironic. And it's meant to be direct foreshadowing, but it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because you all know already that the Titanic is going to sink. And you, you instantly go, that's fake. That's fake. Now, if you read a water-soaked postcard saying, we will see you uh, in New York on Tuesday, really looking forward to it, and the Titanic is beautiful, that's different. Because that person didn't know what they were saying. And that person, at the, and there's a, there's a famous movie where, a famous short story that was made into a television episode that the people are talking about their lives together and you get this whole plot and you're looking forward and they finally get the happy ending they want. And they're looking over the boat deck and then the boat pulls away and you see that it's the Titanic. That works. That works. But you can't have, I, I call that fake foreshadowing because you're, you're drawing on knowledge that is outside the story and you are being too obvious. It's just too obvious in every way. As opposed to the newer town thing, where it isn't obvious what's going on. And then later you're pleasantly surprised by it. Um, in, in Primeval, um, one of my favorite, it's sort of a double flick, I don't know what you'd call it, kind of reverse foreshadowing. Um, so, so Connor is this geeky kid, this is first episode, Connor's this really geeky kid, tech kid, loves uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories. Professor, middle-aged professor, Cutter, says to him, you need to go to a bar, meet a nice girl, things would be a lot simpler. Now in an ordinary story, Connor would go to a bar, meet a girl, and things would get very, very Right? And we are all expecting that for Shadow. That isn't what happens. Cutter goes to the bar, meets a nice girl, and things get complicated in ways that cannot possibly And so it's just a nice, and it's recognizable as foreshadowing. And that's okay because you think you know where the story is now going. Only they're one or two or five steps ahead of you. Okay? Um, so lots of examples of uh, reverse foreshadowing. Casablanca, I stick my neck out for nobody. Um, much ado about nothing. 
and there's nothing to like about it. And you can just sense irritation radiating from her in giant waves. And she leaves the room, and you're thinking, yeah. you are so lucky to still be alive, Connor. And he says, oh, she likes me, Rex. She likes me bad. <laughs> and you might think that is so not true. It's so not true. Well, actually, she does. Like, takes a number of guts, but she really does. So there is, it, it's true, but at the time you are, you are saying the character doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay. Um, in As Good As It Gets, um, at the very beginning, Melvin has just put the dog he hates down the laundry chute or the garbage chute. And he has a conversation with the dog's owner, Simon, and Melvin says, hope you find him. I love that dog. And Simon says, you don't love anything, Mr. Udall. And right there, Simon has stated the entire problem of the story, which will need to be solved, which is, you don't love anybody, Mr. Udall, which is absolutely true. Melvin, on the other hand, has told two lies. He doesn't hope he finds him, and he hates the dog. But by the end of the story, both of those things will be true. That's really good writing. That's really complicated foreshadowing. And it's all and the best thing is when you have the entire theme of the story encapsulated in one line. In the sure thing, uh, the hero's awful roommate is telling him how to catch women. And he has this awful line of power. And he says, sincerity is the best technique. And then he shows him how to pretend to be sincere and as a way to get girls. And it's all just slimy and disgusting. Sincerity is the best technique. Sincerity is the best technique is the entire theme of the movie. And it's all right there. But you don't recognize, if, if he had said it, it would be insufferable. But to have somebody say it thinking that it's totally false and you thinking that it's a lie is really helpful and is a good way to do it. Um, okay, and then in Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen is also excellent, excellent at foreshadowing. Marianne is talking to her mother about uh, romantic love and talking about how much she admires Juliet. And her mother reminds her that Juliet came to sort of a bad end. <laughs> and she says, pathetic to die for love. How can you say so? What could be possibly more glorious? And we have the whole story right there. <laughs> and Marianne is about to almost die for love, and we find out that in fact it's not any of those things. But it's all right there in that first scene. So, okay. All right. And then one other kind is the foreshadowing that has double meanings. Um, double meanings, okay? Uh, in six days, seven nights, uh, the guy takes the young woman to the, uh, uh, the, the you know, tropical island of paradise. Beautiful. And uh, he says, I want this vacation to be unforgettable. It will be. <laughs> she will take off in a small plane with Harrison Ford. There will be shipwrecks. There will be attacked by pirates. It will be really good. <laughs> it will be an unforgettable vacation. He means it, but not in the way that he, that he intended it. Not the way that he said it. And that also is extremely sophisticated. And I, I don't want to say kids don't try this at home, but it's not something you have to do in every single story. But when you can pull it off, it really, really can up the level of the story. Um, in The Bachelor and the Body Soxer, uh, 
old movies with Myrna Loy and Cary Grant and, and Shirley Temple. Myrna Loy is talking to her younger sister, Shirley Temple, and telling her that she needs to pay more attention to math. You are the only girl that defined the triangle as two girls crazy about the same man. <laughs> just the entire point of the movie, the entire story of the movie. They have just encapsulated the whole thing in one sentence. And if you can get it, if you can do that, watch your favorite movie. Chances are, within the first 10 minutes, somewhere, someone will say a line that encapsulates the entire movie. You won't know this the first time through. You have to go back and look for it after you know what the movie's about. But it, and, um, and, and the main thing is, because each of these is said, there's another reason for saying it. In Six Days, Seven Nights, when he says, I want this vacation to be unforgettable. Well, yeah, sure, people say stuff like that all the time. You don't even notice that line as it floats by, okay? And then in The Bachelor and the Body Soxer, it's there as comic relief. It's there as humor. So you don't realize that you are hearing it. Really important to remember that. Two reasons. The reason for foreshadowing what you're doing and what you're making the audience think you're doing, which, of course, is half the battle of writing, period. So thank you very much. This has been a Blood Alcohol Content Network production. For more information, visit www.bacnpodcast.com. Your home for almost bacon and banjo!